0: If this is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Another week, another indictment against former President Donald Trump, a Georgia case, charging him and 18 others for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. This one may prove to be his toughest case yet. But what does this all mean for Georgia voters?
1: I mean, they've basically done everything but say, like, blacks and browns and girls and kids and poor people, and, you know, elderly get out of here. We don't want your votes anymore.
0: The Trump case and Voting Rights and Georgia coming up on a word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
0: This is Jason Johnson. I want to thank you for listening to a word, especially our Slate Plus subscribers whose support helps make a word possible. Slate Plus subscribers enjoy podcasts ad-free bonus content, and access to all of Slate's great reporting on the site. If you enjoy Word, sign up now at slate.com slash a word plus. Thanks again. Welcome to a word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Weeks of rumors and waiting came to an end in Georgia on Monday night with a 41 count them 41 count indictment against former President Donald Trump and others charging a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 vote in Georgia. While the case, which is being prosecuted under RICO organized crime statutes, could be the toughest one Trump faces, it may not stop the attacks on voting rights in the state that intensified in the wake of 2020. Nse Ufot joins us to talk more about it. She's a longtime voting rights activist and the founder of the New South Super PAC. Nse Ufat, welcome back to A Word. Hello, Dr. J. Here's the thing. Before we talk about the implications for voting rights, I want to get your perspective like on the case itself. You're down there. You are in metro Atlanta. What's the most important misconception about this case and what Trump and his minions did in Georgia that people who aren't living there may not understand?
1: I think that there is a a fiction that we've all been sort of participating in and holding up about where the line is, what the expectation is of the president of the United States. And the strength of our institutions, I think, is another thing that, yes, having a uniquely terrible, once-in-a-generation head of state is awful, should be avoided, and I do not think that people appreciate the vastness of the organizing and the conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Again, we're talking about Zoom calls, flights that were booked, you know, ride share agreements that were made, resources that were committed, hotels that were booked, uh, you know, connecting with members of Congress to give them tours of the Capitol building so they know where the exits are and points of ingress and egress, that this wasn't your drunk uncle Rudy and his criminal homeboy Donnie, who were just waxing poetic about a stolen election, that this was a very sophisticated effort that, fortunately for Americans and fortunately for democracy, was unsuccessful.
0: Trump himself, I mean, this is not new, right? He's he's always sort of talking smack from one location or another. And he's gone after Fonny Willis, who is the DA who's responsible for this case, what was her reputation like before this spotlight was on her? Was she just a regular elected official? Was she known as being tough on crime? Was she known as being a sort of a progressive legislator? Like, Who was Fonnie Willis in the minds of Metro Atlanta before this?
1: It's important for your audience to know that she became the Fulton County District Attorney in 2021 on the heels of an election where Paul Howard was the Fulton County District Attorney for decades, uh, who ended a multiple decades-long career in scandal and kind of disgrace. And Fani was one of his deputies that was critical about his leadership. And so I will say that Her reputation to the general voting public, I think, was relatively unknown until some recent high-profile cases. But I think within the legal community, you know, she was known as a no-nonsense person who does her job and, again, went against her boss and ran and won his seat. So people were wanting to see if the courage of her convictions was something that was super consistent. And it has borne out, I think, over as we watch the Trump indictments unfold.
0: What do we know about some of the Georgia officials who are among the 18 other defendants in the case? Like, are a lot of them still in positions of power? Because I know like Jeff Duncan is the former lieutenant governor. He was like, yo, I'm out. Like he said, he didn't want to run again But there are other officials who are involved in this, people who, like you said, were having meetings and setting up ride shares and and getting in touch with members of Congress. So how many of those people who are in this indictment are still in office or may be running for office despite being wrapped up in this indictment?
1: So one, I do not know the answer to that. So let me just put that out there. (laughs) But two, so we're talking about, what, 18, 19 named co-conspirators. We're talking about 30 unnamed co-conspirators and hundreds of activists, volunteers, donors, again, people who agreed to be alternative electors in the electoral college. Because again, One of the things that they are being charged for is attempting to interfere or overturn the electoral college vote. That is 535 people from all of the places that make up these United States. And they have identified alternative electors. So, yes, there are 18 named conspirators. Some of them are from Georgia and some of them were elected officials. Again, it is the scope and the scale that is astounding, but also that it literally goes all the way to the tippy top of state and federal government. It certainly is not anything that we've seen in my lifetime. And there's so many more shoes to drop just with respect to what we saw in Georgia. I will also remind your audience that, that Georgia becomes sort of a key venue in the story of this crime because there were these runoffs that determined control of the United States Senate people in trusted positions, office holders, folks who are responsible for helping sort of ensure the integrity of the elections. And again, I'm speaking about Georgia because that's what I'm most intimately familiar with. But I also know that Georgia is not unique in any way. uh, When we think about the Trump organization or the Trump campaign, not just as you know, the campaign itself, but as this criminal organization that's being investigated by the district attorney in Fulton County, that it goes all the way to the heights of state and federal government.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about the Trump case in Georgia with voting rights advocate Inse Ufot. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Georgia's election interference case against Donald Trump with Georgia attorney and activist Nse Ufat. So aside from democracy and the rule of law, the victims of Trump's efforts are the people that I really care about. You've got Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, and they're the mother and daughter poll workers who really Giuliani, Trump, and others called scammers. They lied about these women for years, claimed they were manipulating votes. These women have had to leave their houses, get security. Talk about those two women in particular. Talk about like local victims of this conspiracy and what their lives have been like.
1: I'm deeply concerned about the ways in which these Black women have been attacked. And I think it's important to point that out because what we are seeing, not only in online spaces, but in traditional media spaces and public forums, that Black women literally doing their jobs are subject to violent rhetoric that doesn't always stay as just words. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were election workers, poll workers, civil servants, hourly wage employees, not like making a lot of money who were subject to death threats because they were identified by the president of the United States as criminals who were lying about the election. To be in a Twitter beef with the president of the United States as an ordinary citizen is terrifying. And then when you layer that with the sort of rabid and violent responses that Trump supporters in particular are known for and encouraged, it is deeply problematic. And I understand that there's a civil suit that's being filed against Rudy Giuliani and I assure you that whatever they're asking for is not enough. And to be clear... The disgraced former president of the United States has a reputation for personal attacks, ad hominem attacks, you know, just straight up lies about anyone that he deems an opponent. But I do believe that he reserves a particular type of vitriol for Black women leaders who he can't control, who have held him accountable. I think specifically about Letitia James in New York. I think about leader Stacey Abrams here in Georgia. I think about Fonnie Willis in Georgia and the vice president of the United States, that despite the fact that, again, these women are literally just doing their jobs and doing it well, I might add, that, you know, lies that sort of lean into the worst and the ways in which white supremacist rhetoric tries to pathologize Black women and Black women leaders. So, like... Hypersexual, you know, immoral, not good at what you're doing, et cetera. And like, it's just so obvious and deeply. Frustrating for me as an observer, but I imagine that is terrifying for the folks who are subject to it, especially if you don't have a massive online and offline real world security infrastructure. So you're out here unprotected. Any old, you know, Reddit user or any old truth social user who believes the president's lies can run up on you in the publics, in the Piggly Wiggly, and your safety is now on the table. And so I want to thank these women for their sacrifice. And quite frankly, all of the civil service, people did not sign up for this. When you think about the folks who volunteer to work elections, or at least before the Trump era, you know, it's like, I want to do some good. And yeah, I'll make a hundred bucks a day and I'll get to see my neighbors and this is my civic duty. And so the idea that now you must like, move in a particular way where, you know, you could be subject to violence if there's a contested election, like this type of attack on our democracy, this type of attack on our democratic institutions, like the Secretary of State, like elections infrastructure, like the press media, like public platforms online where people share information. These attacks in that infrastructure, I think, not only comes at great personal cost to individuals, but it erodes the fabric of our civil society and opens the the door for more criminal behavior like this. And it has to be stopped. And that's why I think this trial is so important.
0: What are some laws that Republicans have passed in Georgia since 2020 to make voting harder, in particular for black folks?
1: I mean, they've basically done everything but say, like, blacks and browns and girls and kids and poor people and elderly, get out of here. We don't want your votes anymore. So, everything I'm talking about from reducing the number of drop boxes that are available in counties, right? So, you have the mail in ballot, you go, you drop it off. The drop boxes used to be available 24 hours because drop boxes, like in most commercial instances, is supposed to give customers access to the business outside of like regular regular business hours. The drug boxes used to be outside of voting locations, outside of the public library and available to voters to drop their ballots off 24 hours. Now they cannot be outside unless there's a camera on them 24 hours. And even then they have to be inside and they only have access to them during business hours for the building that they're in. I think one of the most egregious things is criminalizing what is broadly known as line warming. So, you know, another unfortunate part of Georgia's election history, both long term and recent are the crazy long lines that voters who live in Black or gentrifying neighborhoods are subject to when they're seeking to vote in person. And so smart campaigners like myself and others at the New Georgia Project would order pizzas or hire a food truck, bring out stilt walkers or a mariachi band to keep people's spirits high while they were waiting in line to vote, to encourage people to stay. That is now criminalized behavior subject to not only the volunteer going to jail, but also the voter themselves being pulled out of line and going to jail. So if you accept a bottle of water or a piece of pizza from a campaign volunteer or just a regular, like we care about people standing in the hot Georgia sun volunteer, that is now criminal activity. Thank you, Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp.
0: Has the Department of Justice done anything about that? Has the Department of Civil Rights federally done anything about that?
1: simply put, no. I think that there were attempts, particularly with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, which we sought to get passed in 2021 after delivering a democratic governing trifecta in the House and the Senate and the White House, thinking that that would give us the best opportunity to shore up our country's elections infrastructure. And that was unsuccessful in 2021 and 2022. So I don't say that there has been zero federal government response. What I would say is that the response has been insufficient to neutralize the impact of these hundreds of trash anti-voting laws that were passed since the 2020 election.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more about the Trump case in Georgia with voting rights advocate Say Ufa.
2: Today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Georgia, the Trump indictment, and voting rights with attorney and activist Ense Ufat. Look, the 2020 presidential race was just the start of Trump's losing streak in Georgia. Democrats won both Senate seats in January 2021. Raphael Warnock kept a seat after a failed challenge from Trump back Herschel Walker. What have you been doing on the ground? So, you, you see there's a vast conspiracy by the Republican organization to overturn 2020. Then you see there's massive attempts by Brian Kemp, Republican legislators to make voting harder, but you still pulled off two Senate seats. How did that happen? What did you guys do? What are some of the top line things you did to get Ossoff in office and then keep Warnock in office who faced a runoff against an absolutely incompetent and bizarrely strange man in Herschel Walker?
1: Well, One, thank you for asking that question, is not only sort of being really honest and thoughtful about what it is that we did, but also how we prepare for the upcoming 2024 presidential election, because some of these issues continue to be unresolved. I think that one, it is a math issue, right? That when you look at a place like Georgia, where there are changing demographics, conventional political wisdom would make you believe that Georgia is a red state. And that is why, you know, Republicans were so shocked by the loss in 2020. And then the loss nine weeks later, because they built plans. And quite frankly, the Democrats were also shocked. (laughs) National Democrats were also shocked, right? They built plans based off of maps that are informed by a limited vision of what is possible politically in these states because they rely on conventional political wisdom. The difference between sort of what the parties did and what I did at the New Georgia Project is that instead of assuming we understood what people's priorities were, we went out and asked them. And while, you know, both the National Republican and the national Democratic parties, as well as the presidential campaigns, opted to not campaign in person in 2020. Our folks went to doors on housing projects and on farms in rural Georgia so that we could continue to have high-quality face-to-face conversations when possible with Georgians about how they were experiencing this moment and what they wanted from their state and national leaders. I think that there's a clarity that Black voters are the swing voters in Georgia. And they are the swing voters, not because they swing ideologically, but because they swing in terms of participation. That when you have elevated Black participation, you have extraordinarily competitive elections in Georgia. And when you suppress Black votes, then you get boring, uninteresting elections in Georgia where Republicans just run the table and take that as a mandate. I think that A sophisticated research infrastructure, a sophisticated polling infrastructure, a sophisticated organizing infrastructure, literal boots on the ground, knocking on doors, um, a sophisticated litigation structure and strategy from our connections to Mark Elias, who's his national voting rights lawyer, to the hand to hand combat that we were doing on a county by county level, threatening to sue, sending demand letters on a county by county level. And so the infrastructure that was built to make sure that essentially young voters and black voters and women and femmes that from the day they were registered to vote until their vote was counted and that election was certified that we had eyes and ears at every stage of the process where Republican bad behavior and voter suppression activity had been identified. That doesn't exist in states across the country and it doesn't exist on a federal level. That was what was unique about Georgia and why I think that we were uniquely positioned as civil society to hold the line against Trump's bad behavior when our state GOP refused to.
0: And say, you have a really interesting perspective. You're from Georgia, but you've done organizing all over the country and outside of this country, and you now do work abroad. You do work in sort of developing nations. What do you see as, I mean, basically the slippery slope between a, a former president trying to flip an election in a district and some of the challenges that you've seen in in countries across the world where you're now doing organizing is Trump applying the tactics that we see in some countries in the Middle East and some countries in Africa and some countries in Asia, or does there seem to be a unique level of American corruption going on here? Like, how would you compare some of your, your nations abroad to what we're seeing in Georgia?
1: no it's giving the dictator's greatest hits right like it's his, it's giving dictator's playbook right that that is what his ambitions are i think from the sort of Cold War information, warfare kind of tactics that we're seeing just like repeat the lie over and over and over again, despite evidence. I think the violence that is associated with this movement is also very familiar and will be familiar to voters and and citizens in other countries, places that have experienced a dictator. I'll say that the complicity of the courts particularly after you pack them with your people, also not unique to the United States and again comes from the dictator's playbook. And I also think that the ways in which federal government and civil society are struggling with how to address it is also not unique to the United States. In this moment, in particular, we're talking about maybe what, 50 countries in the next 18 months that have an election for president or prime minister. And so... This is the first time in the history of the world that we've had that kind of change in you know, the head of state or head of government in so many countries at the same time. And they're all watching each other. And the speed at which information and disinformation moves online is unprecedented. And so, no, there's nothing unique about it. And this is an instance where American exceptionalism does not apply. And that there's a lot for us to learn from one another. So I just got back from Rwanda for something similar, but like unrelated. And to revisit 1994, the Rwandan genocide, I think that adult me, because I was a child then, adult me did not appreciate that one million people were murdered in 30 days, right? One million people were murdered in 30 days. And that when you think about how a fascistic regime can rise, I think that there are elements that are at play today right now in the United States and in, in the u.s political context that we need to be mindful of they say that history doesn't repeat itself but that it rhymes and so I am looking at you know what are the things that we can and should be doing to strengthen civil society to make sure that we don't have something similar happen in the United States but again we have more guns than anyone and so what will we be able to do if, for example, the trial takes longer than a year and it bumps up into the presidential election, and the disgraced former president is also the Republican nominee. Right. And he successfully wins because we have a rogue Supreme Court that took a contested election, much like we saw in the year 2000 with Bush versus Gore, and decided to give us a president that we didn't want. And then decides to pause the prosecutions for the entire term that he is serving as president because the law is not clear about whether or not he has to do that. So what I'm doing now is likely scenario planning and thinking about how to get activists and organizers, but also local elected officials and the press ready for what promises to be a wild presidential cycle in the U.S. in the context of 50 other countries having their own version of a wild presidential election as well.
0: If you look at, say, I mean, a lot of your work is, is, is on the continent, but if you look at, say, contested election situations in Israel, if you look at contested elections in in Brazil, um, if you look at contested elections in South Africa, contested elections in Nigeria, in each of those instances, you had arguments as to who won and how and people in power does anything about what Fani Willis just did. Because she's not the federal government, right? She's just one district, one province, one state. Does the idea that a district attorney in a state can get an indictment against a wannabe dictator. Does that in any way encourage you about what our infrastructure might be capable of compared to Nigeria, Rwanda, Brazil, or Israel? Or are you just like, this is tissue paper against sort of a, a rising tide of fascism?
1: I'm very encouraged by this. I, again, I don't believe that any prosecutor has a silver bullet but i am encouraged that our judicial infrastructure at least in the state of georgia and our you know criminal legal infrastructure seems to have been working with respect to this one particular criminal conspiracy, and that there is enough support, despite the attacks, for it to continue, despite the fact that there's also a presidential election happening at the same time. I don't have that kind of confidence, for example, in Nigeria and in Nigeria's elections. I think that, you know, in Nigeria, we saw a candidate for Senate murdered in their car. The night before the election with the staff person, right? In Brazil, there was a whole insurrection on January 25th, you know, January of this year. So despite my critiques of how long it has taken the federal government to bring charges, the narrow scope of the federal government's charges compared to how broad, for example, Fonnie Willis's and Georgia's charges are, I have critiques and criticisms about the strategy and all of that, but... I am certain that there are people who are thinking about this that are seasoned professionals who are committed to doing a good job for the American people. And I don't know if I can always say that in an international context.
0: If someone has listened to this conversation, they're like, hey, what can I do? What can I do to help Georgia in 2024? What can I do to help voting rights organizers and activists on the ground what are just some things that people listening right now can do where they can click where they can call where they can go to to help you in your efforts to keep georgia and i want to make this clear to people in case it's not obvious not in the hands of democrats not in the hands of republicans just so people can actually exercise their rights to vote for whoever the heck it is they want to vote for how can somebody listening to the show right now uh help you in your efforts
1: So this is going to be a very 2023 answer. But first of all, you follow me on social media. I'm at Nse Ufot on all the platforms, N-S-E-U-F-O-T. And yeah, nseufot.com, where I have a newsletter where I talk about some of these issues. But also, everyone needs a political home. I believe this with my entire heart. I'm not a joiner, naturally, right? But here's what I do believe. The reason that the Georgia Mass Choir can hold a powerful note for so long is because each individual vocalist is doing what they can when they can. And that's what I think about, like, the issues that you care about. If you care about democracy, you care about women's rights and reproductive rights, if you care about access to education, that there are people in your state, in your town, that are actively organizing around those issues. And there are absolutely people online that are absolutely organizing around those issues. And so what we don't need is you to be a superhero or a messiah, right? That when each individual is doing what they can, when they can, with what they have in community with people who share their values, that that is how progress is made. So if you are in Georgia and you care about democracy, you care about wages, that the New Georgia Project feels like an extraordinary organization for you to check out and consider becoming a member of, that there are organizations that are similar to that in every single state, and if you don't know who that is, if you follow me, you send me a DM, I will personally figure out how to connect you to activists and organizers and political and organizing homes in your state.
0: Nse Ufop is the founder of the New South Super PAC, an attorney, and a veteran voting rights activist in Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us today on a Word.
1: Thank you. This is lovely. Thank you.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.